Welcome to the Academy of General Dentistry podcast series featuring Dr. George Schmidt. Each episode features experts in the field of dentistry who share insights and inspiration to help you succeed. Let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. And uh, we've got a great show for you today. My good friend, Dr. Robert Bagoff is with us. Hey, Rob, how are you? Okay. Uh, thanks for having me, George. Absolutely. Great to have you. So Dr. Bagoff is a graduate of the Fairleigh Dickinson University College of Dentistry. He's faculty at the Newark Beth Israel Medical Center Department of Dentistry, where he presently holds the position of co-director of the Department of Dentistry and director emeritus of the Division of Restorative Dentistry. He is also associate director of the Wednesday, Wednesday NYU CDE implantology program, where he is an adjunct clinical associate professor. He's a master in the AGD, a great friend of the AGD, a diplomat in the ICOI, and he is a sought out, uh, sought after expert witness. And he has a very successful practice in West Orange, New Jersey with his partner, Stephen Levenbrook. And Rob, I'm really glad to have you on the program today. What I want to talk to you about I know you do a lot of this kind of stuff and you've got some great advice is uh, liability and dental malpractice. Thank you, George. So um, I've been doing the dental malpractice defense um, for about 20 years. It was very interesting to me and things have changed over the years. So let's start out as you get out of dental school, you know, tons and tons of dentistry. Some things people tell you to forget that you're not going to use again. And some people tell you, you're going to learn a whole bunch once you leave, which is definitely true. But very often, nobody's talking to you about how to create charts, how to manage your practice. And it all goes hand in hand. So let's start out with the chart work. The first thing you really need to do is, if you don't have electronic health record, is have very good handwriting. You have to be able to document what the procedure was, what the expectations were from the procedure, and the end result, which means uh, tooth number 14 uh, needed an MO cavity restored. There was decay. You administered some type of anesthetic. You have to put in what type of anesthetic, where it was administered. It was inferior block. It was a buccal infiltration. It was palatal. However you administer the anesthetic, you have to record that. Another thing is there's no such thing as half a carpule of anesthetic in dentistry. If you give two drops of the next carpule, it's a full carpule because there's no uh, markings on the carpule itself. So we know it's 1.7 cc's, 1.8 cc's, depending on the carpule you're using. So we go from there. You should write what the end result was. You place the composite and amalgam, some type of restoration. You check the occlusion and you finish it and polished it. And that's pretty much it. You may need to take an x-ray to ensure that everything was done well afterwards or not. And you record that an x-ray was taken, a bite wing or a periapical. And that's, and then you sign the chart. Some offices, the uh, doctor has the assistant write the chart. The problem is, as good as an assistant is, and some of them are super fantastic, it's the doctor's obligation to write the chart or at least read it over and ensure that every last detail was placed in the chart. Sometimes the assistant doesn't see that a portion of the uh, restoration uh, was not in occlusion or was in occlusion or high occlusion. So you have to make those notes. It doesn't become exquisitely important as you're going through your daily practice, 
but uh, hopefully you'll never have to experience this. But in the case of a malpractice suit or uh, a review by the State Board of Dentistry, they would like to know every nuance of the procedure that you've done. So as we look at this going forward, at the end of the day, the next day, try and write up your charts rapidly, almost immediately after you've done the procedure. This way you have the best recollection of exactly what's done. Let's say on the off chance you forgot something, something that was very, very important that you feel should be in the chart. Never go back and, uh, and correct a record. If you're writing it, never, never erase something, never blot it out. Always put an addendum. It's okay to put an addendum. If you remembered something a week later that you did, put the date that you're going to addend the record, make a note that the record's being addended, and put, put the date of the procedure and what you feel was necessary to put into the chart. That's the best way to addend a record. It is not bad. There's no problem with it. Just never cross out, never try to erase something. So let me ask you a couple of questions, Rob, just based on what you just said there. So the first thing, of course, is you're recommending that the actual dentist uh, write the chart, not the assistant, if you're still using um, paper charts, of course. Um, it's important to have a diagnosis in terms of what you're doing, correct? And and then lastly, Absolutely. and then lastly, and I know it's different from state to state, but we need a signed treatment plan for everything that's done. Is that correct? Actually, again, you're right. It's different from state to state. In New Jersey, the state requires a signed treatment plan, basically saying I'm going to do the following teeth and the following procedures. Now, treatment plans are your best diagnostic guesstimate at the time you're sitting down discussing with the patient, or you can have one of your staff members discuss it with the patient as long as they have the correct wording so the patient understands that an MO on a tooth is the top side and the front side of the tooth. If you're going to do a root canal, the patient should understand exactly what a root canal is, no matter how many root canals they've had previously. We have obligations to explain to the patient what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. So the diagnosis leads us to why we're going to do it. Mrs. Jones, Mr. Smith, you have an infection under this tooth. The infection may not be hurting you now, but I see a little pimple on the side of your gum. The infection is leaking out the side of your gum. And I believe that this needs to be taken care of. I've taken radiographs, x-rays, and it confirms my diagnosis. I've tested it with uh, whatever you feel is most appropriate in your diagnostic armamentarium, whether it's an electric pole tester, cold or hot, or a uh, test cavity. Document what you've done to make the diagnosis, explain to the patient your thoughts and your recommendations. Not everything is going to be within your scope of expertise. There are sometimes a tooth uh, for a general practitioner is beyond our scope of expertise and referral to an endodontist is in the patient's best interest. You'll be able to get the patient back and the patient will appreciate that you've explained to them what their problem is, explained to them why you're referring to the specialist and what you can do to get their to get the best help for them. In this case, we're very much like medicine, where you see an internist and they refer you to a cardiologist. Not because the internist can't read a simple AKG, but in some cases, there are abnormalities that are way beyond their scope of expertise. So I, I guess the phrase we use today is stay in your lane. And that applies to everything we do in dentistry. More education, I think, is the key to success to keeping abreast of what's going on and staying out of problems. 
And the interpersonal skill set we have with our patients is always the key. Explaining to them what the procedure is, letting them understand you've done this before, it makes sense to you, this is basically within your scope of practice, and you can help them, and the outcome that's expected. So, Rob, let me ask you a question. What about the what about the doc that might be a little lazy and uh, it's Friday, it's late, you know, you're busy all afternoon, you want to get to the office and you don't write up your chart until Tuesday. How big of a problem is that? Not at all. Uh, I have no problem. And in, in fact, uh, imagine, I, as you said, you and I are both on staff at hospitals. Um, the, the law gives you leeway to write up your chart. Again, having said that, if you have electronic health record, you may be able to log in to your chart over the weekend, at least before you leave the office, put down the, the date and the treatment that was rendered and the amount of anesthetic that was given. Write up the, the rest of the entire uh, errata in the chart next Tuesday when you come in. But at least this way, and, and put a sticky note on your desk or in your uh, cell phone that next Tuesday I have to write up the chart of Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, but at least you have, you remember exactly what it was and, and the beginning of the record is posted there already. Is that one of the bigger problems that you find when you're, when you're defending these kind of cases is that people just don't keep the, the good records? I, I think that is uh, on both sides, whether we're defending a case or uh, we're working for the plaintiff. Yes, the uh, it, it's a story that many times we have to uh, put in what we believe happened in a procedure. And unfortunately, uh, if it goes that far, um, dentists will have to do a deposition where you're sitting in front of the, the lawyer that's representing you and the plaintiff's lawyer and they're asking you questions and you have three lines and you end up doing a deposition for five hours on three lines. And you're extrapolating what you thought happened, what may have happened, what usually happened. So uh, in law, we believe you. If you write down, you gave two carpules of xylocaine, one to 100,000 in inferior alveolar block, we believe you. Um, it, it's hard to prove uh, the negative. You didn't do that. Um, the patient says, I had nine injections. Well, you may have moved the syringe around a bit, but you actually gave this in that area and the patient got numb or didn't get numb. Um, some of the top reasons that we have problems are poor documentation, where uh, one line is written, tooth number 13, uh, tooth colored filling, uh, checked bite, and the anesthetic is left out. And did you clean out all the decay? Was there decay there? Some diagnoses are the tooth was cracked. There was no decay. Previous restoration was damaged. There is a diastema between two teeth and there's food impaction. These are good reasons to do restorations. The restorative material that you pick is purely up to you. What is within your scope of expertise, what you've used before, what you're comfortable with, and what makes sense to you. And again, I always go back to courses and uh, I don't want to give a plug too much for the AGD, but take a lot of courses that are AGD certified. It means there's a high level of expertise, uh, not only in the person giving the course, but the information that's being passed to you in the course, whether it's a hands-on or lecture, and then uh, literature that's cited in the course that you can review yourself. And then at the end of the day, try things out on a model and contact your uh, colleagues 
ask them what they found to be useful and what makes sense to them. So what's your advice then, Rob, you know, based on, oh, you know, your years of experience doing this kind of work and things like that. So, you know, oftentimes the old saying goes, you don't know what you don't know, right? And, you know, maybe you're new to the procedure, maybe you're a younger dentist or something like that. And, uh, you know, you may or may not be in your comfort zone, if you would. How do you stay out of trouble or how would you defend yourself if something goes wrong? I mean, where do you go? What's What happens in those kind of scenarios? Well, the, I think the best thing to do is if you're doing a new procedure or you're trying to do a new procedure, believe it or not, contact your colleagues, somebody you went to dental school with, one of your teachers, uh, look for a course that you can take online to get your fingers wet. Then find the practical application. If you're doing a restoration using a, a new composite material, look at the literature. You don't have to take a hands-on course to do an MO or a DO in a new composite material that's on the market. You, you look at the criteria, you see who has looked at it, if it is FDA certified. So these are the things that mean that it's, it's usable, it makes sense, it's a good posterior, it's a good anterior, it's highly polishable, um, and see if any of your friends have used it. Uh, go to your local um, society, contact them. Everybody can help. It, it is amazing in this computer electronic age, get online for two seconds on Facebook and everybody's going to give you some help. Did they use it? Um, you're not looking for a sales pitch. Detailed people come to your office all the time. Their goal is to get you to buy their product. And they may indeed have a good product. And I always ask, which one of my colleagues in the uh, 30 mile radius have used it? And uh, is this certified? And who's using this on the national lecture circuit? And can I have some to try on a dentiform? So I like to see what the properties are in myself. Does it make sense? Um, if for some reason you get involved, and there's so many things that we look at that are here today, gone tomorrow, that we have to be cautious of. And today, not so much in composite dentistry, but in medicaments that you're placing into the gingiva that may help periodontal disease, um, things that you're using as a salve, things that you're using in implant dentistry. And I think that implant dentistry and aesthetics are two of the areas that we see the biggest issues in malpractice, where um, in aesthetics, people make a guarantee. And I will, uh, I will warn everybody, we can't guarantee pretty much anything. Medicine doesn't do it. I would, I would caution against putting a guarantee on your website. Uh, I would say to patients, I will try the best that I can. I have a lot of experience in it. Also, don't use the term, uh, you're the best. Uh, the best is, again, one of those issues. People may come to you because you're the best, and you don't deliver the service that they're expecting. We all try equally hard. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to do less than the best that I can do today. If you or one of your staff have a bad day, and again, interpersonal skill set relationships can cause malpractice issues. Always try and be upbeat. Whatever the problem is, leave it at the door. You have to be uh, patient-focused and treatment-centered. Got to make sure that whatever you're going to do, you're focusing right on that. If you're going to do something that is so far afield of what you've done today and previously, I would recommend taking a hands-on course somewhere so you get a really, really good feel for the instrumentation and for the materials. It is tough to add things into your office that are very expensive and you've never used it before. And I will say the, the first thing that I can think of is uh, lasers. Many people buy lasers and they don't have a good laser course. 
You can't take a laser course online. There's a lot of safety issues that are associated with it. The patient has to wear safety glasses. You have to wear safety glasses. And you have to document this in your chart. All safety procedures afforded the patient have to be documented. You can't just say it's routine and you'll have to have a lot of people testify that it's routine in your office. However, if you write it in your notes, it is what we believe. You, you gave the patient laser safety glasses. They were appropriate glasses for that laser. You use it in an appropriate fashion. This is what you were trying to do. And the result was what the expectation was. And anytime you do surgery, it's important to follow up with the patient. You can't do, I can't tell you how many times we hear, I read that the patient had a tooth extracted and they tried calling the doctor after hours. There was no communication for three weeks. The patient was in pain. The patient ended up in the hospital and it was because of a lack of communication. Again, so communication can cause malpractice. It wasn't that the action was poor. It could have been reasonable. And the patient unfortunately used a water pick to clean the area and rinsed out the membrane and the graft material and ended up with a dry socket. And the doctor doesn't uh, listen to his voicemails in the morning. The staff does. Uh, I always recommend and what I do and what we teach at NYU, contact the patient that evening. If you're doing a root canal, if you're doing an extraction, an implant, anything that's surgically oriented, we have to speak to the patient that evening or the next day, leave them a message. If you can't get a hold of them, make sure you get a hold of them within 24 hours. And I also always tell the patient before they leave the office, I and my partner will call you, not one of the staff. One of us will make sure that everything is going the way we expect and you're comfortable. Another thing along those lines, I will definitely say is it's all over the news, narcotics and writing prescriptions. So the first thing is, I, even though we have video uh, evaluations of patients, and I, I know it's very big, uh, I never write a prescription for a patient that I don't know. And I personally don't do video consultations, though it's big in the field. And uh, there are rules that you have to follow. And if followed correctly, makes a lot of sense that you help a lot of people, especially during the pandemic. I would uh, never write a prescription for somebody that I've never met. And I get calls probably once or twice a month uh, for people that were referred by somebody who knows I'm a very good dentist and they throw a ton of accolades at you. And they only need four Percocet. And it's usually never an antibiotic. And my answer is, well, where are you located? Well, I'm about 20 minutes away. I said, I can be at the office in half an hour. I've been in the office at three o'clock in the morning. And uh, uh, George, you know, both of us are on staff at Beth Israel. And if we get a call from the resident and nobody can come in, I'm in Newark at three o'clock in the morning working with the resident, whether it's in the emergency room or the operating room. We And I'm also on staff at St. Barnabas. We make sure that we will see that patient if they're in that much pain. If they're far away from us, I'll say, let's find a dentist or an emergency room in your area so you can be treated immediately. The key things that need immediate treatment are trauma uh, and infection. Uh, and an emergency room can always take care of trauma or infection till the patient's stabilized. So I have a, my own policy. Don't write a prescription for narcotics for somebody you don't know. And even if you do know them, New Jersey and other states have the PMP, Prescription Monitoring Program. I look up every patient that I would write a prescription for to evaluate how they had narcotics or other medications in the past 30 days. 
And what have I done for them that would cause the need for a narcotic uh, analgesic as opposed to a non-steroidal? So we have to weigh the type of surgery we're doing and the patient's level of discomfort. So before I ever do surgery, I ask patients, what is your level of discomfort? Have you ever had any type of surgery? What did you have afterwards? And again, all these notations go in the chart. It creates a story for you for today and in the future. So Rob, that's, I mean, that's obviously really good advice. And I want to circle back and talk a little bit about, more about communication and rapport, but I, I also want to go back, excuse me, and talk about uh, charting. What, what's the minimum health history that we need? What's a good health history that you've got to have on every patient to make sure you stay out of trouble? Go to the American Dental Association website, the Academy of General Dentistry. They have a couple of great forms um, and use them. They're prepackaged. You want to get a, uh, you want to get a good history of allergies. You want to get a good history of any medications they've taken and any surgeries they've had. Uh, I always ask, and, and you have to get your, what I call the patter down so it makes sense to you. So you're not bumping and grinding with the patient. I always ask, have you ever had hepatitis, diabetes, tuberculosis, high blood pressure, rheumatic fever, mitral valve prolapse, any implanted devices, any screws placed, any type of trauma, hip or knees, and you can go on whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, sometimes patients come in with a list of medications and a list of problems. Those patients in our office always get a request from the, their physician to give us some more information. And many times I'd like to speak to the physician, especially if it's a diabetic or somebody who's had chemotherapy, radiation therapy. Um, I want to know if there are any precautions. We also treat in our office uh, many medically compromised people. So we're on the phone with physicians a lot. Make sure that everything makes sense. You have to know your patient before they sit in the chair. And every time the patient comes into the office, our chart is, my chart is, and this is what I teach. The first line should always be the procedure you've done. The second line is review medical history. And I ask every patient, if I saw a patient in the morning, I will ask them if they come back in the afternoon for a procedure, I will ask them again, is there any change in your medical history? They laugh at me, but sometimes they went to see the physician and they changed their medication. So I never want to be caught uh, off guard. And I always ask the same thing every time, all the time. We wanted to also do uh, a, a good oral cancer screening. Every time you do a hygiene visit, the hygienist should be taught to do an oral, oral cancer screening and you should do an oral cancer screening. And I know there's a lot of controversy. Dentists don't know how to do it well. And that's great. You're, first, you're now asking for help. Go to the AGD and find out when they have the next meeting and learn how to do a good oral cancer screening. If not, contact your local oral surgeon or your local dental school. Every school gives courses. There's always a place, or your local society, there's always a place to give, uh, to, to learn to do a good oral cancer screening. Unfortunately or fortunately, every year I find people. This year I found three. Uh, one gentleman has been a patient of mine for 30 years. And remember, oral cancer screening is not just in the mouth. He had a lesion on his face that to me was getting bigger and it actually tripled in size from when I saw him six months ago. And he poo-pooed it. And um, Dr. Schmidt, you know, I can be kind of aggressive. I made him see the dermatologist. And indeed, it was a cancer that he ended up having a Mohs surgery. And it was a pretty deep lesion. Uh, he was going to have a procedure done in my office. He had to wait a month for the area to heal. 
came back and he couldn't believe that I was the guy that found a cancer on his face and he couldn't thank me enough. These are things that we see. How many people have moles on their neck that you ask? You don't have to count every mole, but you ask, have you seen the dermatologist recently? At least once a year, you can guide your patient to see a dermatologist. If they don't have one, contact a local a medical society, go online, give them the name of five people, ask them to contact their healthcare provider, whoever the GP is. These are things that it, it is good communication, it's good patient care, and it's within the dentist's purview to look at the head and neck area and find things. I hate to say it, look at Dr. Pimple Popper on TV. Look at all the things that are in pa patients' faces and necks that you imagine that they, and one patient, I remember two weeks ago, said she was just to the dentist and the dentist didn't say anything. I'm thinking, how could you have that thing on your face and the dentist just worry about tooth number 19? We have to be physicians of the head and neck. That's our training. And that's where we're going. We're, we're in a digitized society. And these things are not difficult to understand. And again, I can't say it enough. Continuing education broadens your horizons and opens your expectations. Couldn't agree with you more, Rob, about all that. I mean, uh, I really, really appreciate you bringing that up. And I appreciate you bringing up um, oral cancer and oral cancer screening. And of course, at the AGD, uh, we're very involved in that. And we have the uh, AGD Foundation, which is the philanthropic arm of the uh, Academy of General Dentistry. And every year at the uh, AGD 2023, this year, of course, every year at our scientific session, we do run oral cancer screenings and things like that. So it's it's really good to have that out in the forefront. And I, and I appreciate bringing that up, Rob. Um, I want to circle back to communication. So in your experience, like as an expert witness, I mean, communication is so very important, right? I think a lot of times, I think you would agree, or maybe you could tell us and share some experience, that communication, the lack of communication, and maybe even, unfortunately, um, the lack of firm financial arrangements can uh, let someone wind up on the wrong end of the law, correct? Absolutely. So the first thing you have to realize is patients believe that dentistry is uber expensive, and they don't see the value. That's our fault. We don't explain the value of what we do when we meet the patient. So we become a piecemeal worker. The lower right molar needs a filling. Uh, they have insurance. Their insurance pays X. And if you uh, will charge them uh, more than X, they're not going to be here if you're not a participant uh, in their procedure. So we have to create value from the first time we meet a patient. There are so many management companies talking about value. It's amazing that dental school, for the most part, doesn't pick up and teach students the value of what we're doing as opposed to the piecemeal work. So the patient comes in, we greet the patient, we sit them down, we find out all about them, we review their medical history. I also want to know something socially about them, what type of job they have, what uh, hobbies, their family. These are, these are entrees into getting more referrals and treating people in your family practice. So as you look at this, once you have that down, you sit down with the patient and you make a treatment plan. Um, we look at the basic things that are needed first. And I always recommend doing a hygiene visit first. The hygienist does the routine exam. And I will say a good set of x-rays. So we have to understand people take radiographs. And sometimes I hate to say it, it seems like they're doing radiation therapy. You look at the radiographs and you're wondering, wondering exactly what was in their mind. You can't see the teeth. You can't see the apices. 
There are things that look like teeth. I'm not too sure. So the doctor has to teach if the assistant or whoever's taking the radiographs is not getting what you need, you have to show them how to do it. It's our obligation to make sure that the patient gets the appropriate radio radiographs. Once we have that, then the diagnostic procedure ensues. Uh, you may also add clinical findings uh, to the radiographs. Not every radiograph is going to show a cracked amalgam or cracked restoration on tooth number 15. So you have to add that in. Then a good periodontal screening, uh, pocket charting. But the hygienist is doing that, or the associate dentist is doing that, or you do it. When you get in there, you have to take the perio probe, and it has to be a good perio probe. There are so many perio probes that are not getting the job done. It has to be something that you can read. And I'm not going to tell people how to practice, but I personally believe that a set of loops with a headlight is a key to success in modern day dentistry. I'm not saying that you need to have a microscope, which many people do, and I applaud them for their usage, but without the, the uh, advantage of loops and light in the patient's mouth, you're not doing as good a job as you possibly could. And it's, it's, not, it's not to the patient's advantage and not to your advantage. And by the time you're done practicing, you look like a question mark by bending over. So as, as we, again, as we look at these things, we want to have the good set of radiographs and medical history. And the first thing you got to ask the patient is why are you here? What can I do for you? And sometimes you're going to see a patient that has large cavities in their teeth and they have a little food stuck in the lower right. And that has nothing to do with the problems that you see. So at, at that point, education begins. An intraoral camera, I think, is a, a necessity to, in today's dental environment. When I first started, we didn't have them. I used to draw pictures on the bracket table and show picture, people pictures. Uh, one of my patients has a picture I drew 30 years ago. And it, it's very funny. She, she kept that. And that, that's how we started uh, doing 30 years in family and friends, she refers to me. So uh, the intraoral camera, uh, the picture is worth a thousand words. It becomes real to the patient where the hole or the broken restoration in the back of their mouth now becomes self-evident. They see it. It makes sense. Doc, I understand that this needs to be fixed. Okay. So the discussion now goes to education and you're teaching them. Uh documented in the chart, what they saw. And then you have a treatment plan, whatever software program you're using, the tooth number, the ADA code, and a descriptor, an English descriptor, so the patient will understand exactly what's being done and the fee for the service. So as you look at these things, the patient will see what the fees are, and then you make a good uh, financial arrangement or your staff makes a good financial arrangement with the patient. And from there, things move smoothly, whether they want to do everything at once, one tooth at a time, however they want to do it. I will also caution people, never, never bill for things you haven't done. If it comes to the end of the year and the patient says, I have X amount of dollars left for my insurance, will you bill my insurance today for things you'll do next year? Can't do that. That is bad. And it leads the patient to other things that are not so good. I would just caution against that. I've seen that a few times. And what happens is that's not malpractice in and of itself, but it leads to the credibility. And realize malpractice is usually adjudicated with a judge and a jury. And the jury of the people, are your, your neighbors, people down the block, people you work with, people you work near, restaurant owners, everything, people in Macy's, everybody can be on a jury. And if they start seeing things that you've done 
that are made to look really, really bad financially, it goes to you as a practitioner. You may have done the best restoration in the world. It's the other things that will bring you down. Um, the the understanding, and, and the other thing is, I recommend again, and this is just me, never sue a patient. This is the best educational experience you've had. There have been malpractice cases where the dentist took the patient to small claims court, realized the dentist took a day out of their practice to take a patient for not a lot of money to small claims court and ended up in a malpractice action that lasted five years. And most of these malpractice actions last three to five years. It's three to five years of your life because you beat them in small claims court or you sent them into a collection agency. I recommend people don't do this for the reason, have good financial arrangements. You're not a bank, but you're also not going to give it away. If you if a patient is not paying on the way that you your, your agreement was, you have to stop and talk to them. This is not, I'm just going to stop working on you. Again, the conversation ensues. Maybe they had a family member that was sick. Maybe they needed something for the doctor. Be human. Speak to them, see what you can do to stabilize them. You may not con continue with a, a 10 unit crown and bridge, but you're going to stabilize them and they will understand you're doing this in their best interest. This we have to get back to we are the nice family dentist that is going to do the best work we possibly can with the education that we have. And we're going to make great financial relations with patients. We're going to put in writing. And when things change, we're going to explain to them what you see, why it's changed, and what needs to be done going forward. So there are think, always alternatives. I think that's great advice, Rob. And I and I would I would also agree that I mean I know I've known a number of my colleagues who were outstanding clinicians, and it wasn't until they sent someone to collection, you know, where a malpractice issue had had arisen. And and I think that's really well. Well, a good advice that you could give us. Rob, we're about to run out of time, but there's two things I want you to talk about here. Um, and one of them, we talked about x-rays before, but a CBCT. CBCT necessary for implant dentistry in this day and age from a, from a liability standpoint? Well, George, you and I have spoken about the standard of care versus the gold standard. So legally, any radiograph that's going to give you the idea of what how much room it, there is to place an implant between teeth and between vital structures. You always want to be away from the infralvular canal, at least two millimeters from the books. I'll say three millimeters. You want to be away from teeth, at least three millimeters. You want to be away from the labial plate of bone, at least two millimeters. I'd like three millimeters. So yes, a, a periapical and a panorex are good, but realize there is distortion in a periapical, not so much all the time, in a very, very well done periapical. And in a panorex, you can have up to 25% distortion as you go to the posterior. And that's in a well done panorex. You can also have distortion in the cat scan, but much less. We can also focus field of view, a smaller area in a cone beam as opposed to a medical grade scan. So I'm not saying that you need to have a CAT scan. The uh, American Academy of Implant Dentistry says it's a uh, standard of care. Le uh, standard of care is a term that is used in court. It is, as of this date, not the legal standard of care anywhere in the United States. It is, however, the gold standard in my mind. So can you do implants without, uh, without CAT scans? Absolutely. More implants are done in the United States without CAT scans than with CAT scans. 
For me, it just makes it easier to understand and do the surgery on a software program in the patient's best interest. But that's me. There are many people who are gifted and can do implants perfectly um, outside of the use of a CAT scan. So it's a, it's a good idea. Uh, I think it helps. And for the novice, I think it is important that the novice use it till they get really good feel. For those who are not using CAT scan, they usually reflect a lot more soft tissue so they can visualize the bone and place the implant within the housing of bone uh, based on a restorative end product. So I, I think that I know that in my hands, I, I use a CAT scan and it just makes sense to me, but it is not the standard of care. Thanks for that, Rob. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I do want to just uh, ask you one more thing about uh, CBCT, and and that is that um, when you do order a CBCT or when you do take a CBCT, you're responsible for everything in that image, correct? That's correct. And there are a number of online services that you can get that will read the CBCT for you, and it, they are uh, dental and uh, radiologists. Uh, usually they're going to be boarded by the American Board of Oral and Maxillofacial Radiology, or you can have your local hospital radiologist, if they feel comfortable, read your scans and tell you exactly what they see in the scan. So what I would say is get the smallest field of view that you can to do the implants that you're looking for. If you can avoid doing anything above the nose and anything below the chin, that's the best. And anything that is behind the uh, tuberosity, don't do. Those are in the areas of an oral surgeon and you don't need to do them. Uh, so focus field of view in cone beams is uh, what I would always recommend. Very good. Thanks, Rob. And listen, we're out of time, as I said, but I really do want to thank you for coming on the program and sharing some really great insight about a liability malpractice and charting and, and pretty much everything in between. So really appreciate you, Rob. Thank you. Thank you, George. Uh, it's always a pleasure to work with you. It, it's phenomenal, actually. And uh, anything I can do for the AGD. Um, I've been a member since I got out of dental school, and it has really made me see that education really is at the forefront of my career. Well, thank you, Rob. And we do. We know you're a great supporter of the AGD. In fact, I think you've won a couple of awards for uh, sending membership uh, or, or driving up the membership numbers. But anyway, thank you, Rob. Really appreciate that. I'd also like to thank our producer, Kristen Gover. If you like what you heard, please like and subscribe to our channel. You can always find us on the AGD app, on Spotify, SoundCloud, and of course, Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, or suggestions, please contact us at news at AGD.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.